Hello to one talk here come the Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific Mikoroy Hawkins. Coming up, a reassessment of where people are recruited from needs to be carried out. There's a call for more research into what domestic sectors Pacific workers joining labor mobility schemes are coming from. Also, we're seeing that there is a mismatch between how we're talking about climate finance and what is actually needed. Developed nations at COP27 are still refusing to play ball when it comes to climate financing commitments. And later on... Overall, with all the Pacific uh, programs we have, we've been able to provide consultation to over one million people. The Fred Hollows Foundation marks 30 years of working to restore sight and end avoidable blindness throughout the developing world. A research associate at the Australian National University's Development Policy Centre, Richard Curtin, says it's unclear whether there actually has been a brain drain from the Pacific due to the seasonal worker schemes in operation in New Zealand and Australia. There have been recent claims of Pacific workers leaving senior public service positions to pick fruit in the metropolitan countries, attracted supposedly by higher wages. Last month, Samoa ordered a review after reports over the loss of police officers to New Zealand's recognised seasonal employer scheme. The same concern has been raised by local business owners in Vanuatu, who say they've lost skilled manpower to seasonal worker schemes and are facing difficulty replacing them. Dr Curtin has written a series of blogs on this so-called brain drain and says the claims are based on anecdotal accounts and that more substantial information is required. I think it's reached a particular point where a reassessment and reconfiguration of where people are recruited from needs to be carried out. I recently was in Vanuatu and was in discussion there with people concerned about a number of the narrowness of the of the recruitment patterns and my recommendation was that there is a need for the sending government to call Australian and New Zealand employers to a meeting and for both sides to put on the table their concerns about what the current state of play is. On the employer side, COVID created a a set of conditions that dramatically altered the way the program operated in the past. Basically, people returned home after a set period. And of course, they couldn't do that and had to stay in Australia or New Zealand. But that created a number of difficulties, including behavioural problems, uh, a lot of dissatisfaction, the lack of flow of continuous work, etc., etc. So in many ways, particularly in uh, Australia, employers feel that that they would like to move to other countries because, for example, a major problem has been absconding. The most recent figures I've seen, over 4,000 people from the countries that send seasonal workers, and it doesn't necessarily mean all these were seasonal workers, but from the countries that send seasonal workers have obtained bridging visas. So there are a lot of concerns on the part of employers 
and of course concerns on the part of the sending countries in terms of the narrowness of the benefits that I've just talked about. So the whole arrangement needs to be reconfigured if they're going to keep coming from the countries they have been coming, which are in fact very small countries compared to other countries that are eligible. Of course, we've got Papua New Guinea with a population of 10 million, which completely overshadows every other country in the region. Then we've got uh, Timor-Leste, in Australia's case, is eligible for seasonal work, but is not in New Zealand's case. And then we've got um, Fiji and Solomon Islands. So there is a lot of interest in moving to other countries, but there is even in the existing ascending countries potential for workers that are in remote areas to be recruited that haven't had a chance to take up the work. If we just just for a moment look at the, the smallest of those three main ones you've mentioned earlier, Vanuatu, Samoa and Tonga, if we look at Tonga, what percentage of the population is currently working in Australia and New Zealand? We have looked at this, I think, Amongst men, it's one in four, so it's high. So you've been writing these blogs on the brain drain, or these, this talk of a brain drain, and what conclusions have you come to? But basically, that there is grounds for improving the selection process at the moment, and the complaints that have um, come forward are significant enough or something that I always thought would be a problem that had to be monitored. And I think the problem is there hasn't been enough effort put into monitoring what the background of people have been in terms of the villages that they've come from and in terms of their education and, and employment status. That information is needed. May, may I, I say also, uh, in relation to the Pacific Access category and the Samoan quota, I think uh, I would recommend that the New Zealand government collect information on the occupation, the existing occupations of those people who are accepted for permanent residency as a way of giving the sending countries a better understanding of what the impact. That, that, that's a very significant number of people, particularly in the case of Samoa, who are leaving each year. As you know, it's up to uh, 1,100. And that in itself would most likely attract people from a different socio-economic background, in other words, the more educated, uh, because of the offer of permanent residency. And that uh, flow needs to be better monitored so that um, the sending countries can work out how they respond. We've done an analysis of the ratio of people that apply for the position, and we found that uh, Samoa has the largest per population, the largest number of people applying for those positions. So there's a huge demand for them. Are you suggesting that that quota is perhaps destructive? I'm just saying that more information is needed. You know, when they're talking about the seasonal worker program being mm. the source of people leaving their paid public service jobs, I would suspect that it's more likely to be the Samoan quota. 
climate funding discussions at COP27 continue to be a thorny issue, antagonising developing nations slate into the final week of the UN climate meeting in Egypt. Negotiation fatigue is creeping in for small island nations with a lack of support from developed nations to come to an agreement on compensating vulnerable countries for climate-fueled disasters. RNZ Pacific reporter Rachel Nath spoke with the Net Zero Ambassador for the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, Raquel Mosese, beginning by asking her about some of the challenges Pacific delegates were facing in the negotiating rooms. Um, I think for us, you know, if, if there's anything that we want people to, to understand is that the, the issue of, of climate finance is really nuanced. And we're seeing that there is a mismatch between how we're talking about climate finance and what is actually needed. I think that we need to get to far more specificity around the kind of money that especially uh, Pacific Islanders and, and other small island developing states and Caribbean islands require. We need a lot of grant funding, a lot of catalytic capital that can help us to prepare projects and, and take advantage of the, the enormous amount of investment that is available in, in the uh, private market. And so we need to understand that, that there's a lot of unlocking of, of capacity that needs to take place. We also need a sustainable way forward with loss and damage. And so even if this fund is created, how is it funded? How easily is it accessed? Um, we cannot wait another six years to get it capitalized. You know, it's something that we need action on this right now. And luckily, uh, island nations are taking, taking advantage of, of different, uh, whether it's the international law of the sea or the uh, international um, Court of Justice to try and get some kind of action. And then finally, it is that we have a lot of solutions. I mean, the Caribbean has a lot of solutions in terms of measuring vulnerability and mapping the path forward to to, uh, becoming climate resilient. And we want to see more of those kinds of things being highlighted. We so often only hear solutions from the global north. And I think that that's deeply unfortunate. We need to also highlight the triumphs of, of the Caribbean and the, and, and the Pacific, and I want to hear more about that. Right. So is the language around funding 100 billion commitments not enough? Leading to, again, that understanding the nuances of what's required, because if we keep talking about the 100 billion and we're not specific about what does that 100 billion entail, then I think that we are likely to continue to find a mismatch where uh, the capital markets are talking about we have money, but there are no projects. And the projects are talking about we don't have any money for these projects. The, the, the reality is that there are different kinds of, of money that we require and we need more blended finance. We need more um, philanthropic money. We need more grant-based funding. And that will help us to unlock the capacity of the uh, private capital markets. And would you say there is still hope to see the outcomes that the Pacific and the Caribbean have been lobbying for in this past two weeks? Yes, you know, I've, I've heard some rumblings of momentum. And I think while, you know, it's not going to be complete until until it's all over, I'm really, really hopeful. Um, we, we've had some and I can't specifically say who, but we've had some surprising allies in calling for specific action on loss and damage. So, so that's 
that's promising. But above and beyond what the negotiators are doing, we hosted an investor forum yesterday, highlighting the role of the private sector on collaboration towards things like increased parametric insurance facilities to improve our ability to recover and other things that the private sector can do to support either loss and damage or our climate adaptation. But failing that, I moderated a panel last week, Friday, and the governments of Antigua and Barbuda and Tuvalu, uh, you know, what they're doing on the formation of the uh, COSIS, the Commission of Small Island States on Climate Change and International Law. And they're seeking redress uh, from the international, through the international law of the sea. And the government of Vanuatu is seeking an advisory opinion from the International Court of Justice. So I think what I like about where we are is that there is pressure from all sides. We're not necessarily going to just sit by idly and wait to see what the negotiators come up with. We are hopeful that they come up with something meaningful and useful, but at the same time, um, action is taking place in the private sector and action is taking place at the government level outside of the negotiation room. Finally, how can the Pacific and the Caribbeans work together to push through the common agenda? Definitely. I mean, again, things like uh, what the government of Vanuatu is doing and the collaboration between Antigua and Barbuda and Tuvalu and other Caribbean and other nations joining them. We're seeing that small island states, big ocean states have so much in common in terms of things like how we go, how we pursue blue carbon and, and what are the options available to us uh, to, to prevent erosion. And so there are lots of points of collaboration. We're even seeing entrepreneurship collaboration between the, the Pacific and the Caribbean. And we expect to see, especially through convenings like this, those kinds of collaborations to, to, to increase. I would say half of the events that I've participated in have been uh, Pacific, Pacific events and maybe the other half Caribbean events. So, so we see the need to collaborate. We understand the similarities that we share. And we also understand that while we are small in, in terms of population size and in terms of the size, you know, the size of our islands, we have strength in numbers. There are many of us having a very similar experience. And by working together, we can get more, more progress. The Fred Hollows Foundation is this week celebrating 30 years of working to restore sight to the needlessly blind and vision impaired and striving to end avoidable blindness throughout the developing world. Huey legend Professor Fred Hollows had a vision of a world where no one is needlessly blind or vision impaired. From the work Fred and his wife Gabby Hollows started, the foundation has grown to become a global leader in eye health and has restored sight to more than 3 million people worldwide. Shortly after the establishment of the Fred Hollows Foundation in 1992, the New Zealand Foundation was created initially as a fundraising branch to support the global organisation. In 2002, it began its own work in the Pacific, restoring sight and training eye health workers in the region. Joining me is the Fiji Country Manager for Fred Hollows Foundation New Zealand, Kirti Prasad. Bula and welcome on Pacific Waves. Starting with Fiji, tell us about the foundation's work in the country. So um, I'm with Fiji alone. Um, uh, we'll just 
brief background on what the Fiji uh, program does is that uh, we train um, doctors and nurses from the Pacific region at the Pacific Eye Institute. And we also provide with um, eye care services, not only at the main eye clinic, but also out uh, on outreaches. Um, at the moment uh, in Fiji, uh, I can only, um, if we see into, into 2021, there were about 13,000 plus consultations and uh, we performed over 263 side-saving surgeries. Um, and also we do di diabetes clinics. So in 2021, we did about 481 diabetes laser treatments and we also do a dispensing of classes. But um, uh, in addition to that, our outreach programs, we 3,000 plus. Why I'm quoting 2021 is because in 2022, we were unable to provide all the services due to COVID restrictions. But uh, overall, uh, Pacific Eye Institute, uh, since uh, Fred Hollow started operating there, we have been able to uh, train about 367 um, ophthalmic uh, eye care workforce. And overall, with all the Pacific uh, programs we have, we've been able to provide consultation to one over one million people. Huge achievements there, and and as as you mark the thirtieth anniversary of of Fred Hollows, where is the work heading? What's the what's I guess emerging from the pandemic as well? What what are the things you're you're looking at um, as you look at the road ahead now? I think um, there's a huge backlog now. Uh, there was a backlog previously, but due to COVID-19 uh, restrictions and, you know, um, when human resources were used to uh, address um, COVID, uh, the eye care services was uh, not as much as we wanted it to be. So there is currently a huge backlog. And going forward, we are trying to clear uh, what... Um, was left behind, but also what new eye care uh, diseases that are coming up. Um, with the lockdown, we have seen an increase in number of diabetes retinopathy cases because people were in at home and, you know, uh, unable to move around a lot and exercise. So we do see a uh, increase in uh, diabetes retinopathy cases in our clinics. What other conditions are common in the Pacific with eyesight and that you're dealing with? So the three most common uh, conditions uh, or the causes of visual impairment or blindness is uh, diabetes retinopathy, cataract, and uh, refractive error. Now, so with the, obviously with the work that you're doing, if people want to get involved and help, how can people um, get involved and be part of the great work that the foundation and you guys are doing across the region? Uh, in the Pacific, we all know that resources are quite hard I mean and um, other disciplines are given priority and um, like Fred Hollow says you know the humanity of a country will be determined by the extent to which it helps countries less fortunate than itself and we've been quite uh, grateful for the um, contribution that uh, New Zealanders have been making towards the foundation and from the foundation we've been able to provide eye care services and uh, you know restore sight to at least 81,000 people so um, continuing that work and um, getting assistance in terms of uh, funding um, really helps us. So if uh, people want to get involved, they can go through the uh, Fred Hollows Foundation New Zealand uh, website, which is hollows.org.nz, and uh, you can be directed on how you can assist us in the Pacific. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, enjoy the, the anniversary celebrations and um, all the best with the ongoing work. Thank you so much, Karui. 
Naka. Mode. Mode. That's Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Thank you, Tomas, and looking for that next time more.